0: Alright, we're in Acts chapter 19. So you can turn there. Again, yes, again. It's a long chapter. And I'm making the most of it, brother. But first, I want to talk about Dodge City. So, um, this summer when we were on the way to see Taylor and Abigail in Kansas, we just happened to pass by Dodge City. And Brad Young would not forgive me if I didn't stop and pay homage to Wyatt Earp. So, <laughs> so he stopped at the museum there in Dodge City and ran, kind of ran through it. We went through it really quickly. But um, I found out a really interesting thing. There's a little church there, and you know, Dodge City was founded in 1872 as a, a trading center, basically, for buffalo hunters, and when they were all gone, then it became a cattle town, a wild cattle town, and um, other than cattle, In the 1870s, Dodge City was, um, the economy was heavily weighted toward um, saloons, gambling halls, and brothels. I mean, that's what it was known for. One newspaper, um, local newspaper in the 1870s said, Dodge was a synonym for all that is wild, reckless, and violent. Hell on the plains. Isn't that a nice way to talk about your city? (laughs) So the town was really famous for, for drunken, drunkenness, prostitution, murder, and lawlessness. That's what it was known for. So, but in 1876, a, a 26-year-old Presbyterian preacher showed up to start a church. Now, people had come before evangelists, and they always got beat up and kicked and got out of town, and no, they never stayed there. Um, but this guy came, and um, there's an article in the Dodge City Times from 1878, and it really describes beautifully, I think, the the arrival of Reverend Ormond Wright of New Hampshire. So it says, this is an actual article from the Dodge City Times. The wicked city of Dodge can at last boast of a Christian organization, a Presbyterian church. It was organized Sunday last week. We would have mentioned the latter last week, but we thought it best to break the news gently to the outside world. The tender bud of Christianity is only just beginning to sprout. But as tall oaks from little acorns grow, so this infant, under the guide and care of Brother Wright, may grow and spread its foliage like a manly oak of the forest. Years ago, John the Baptist preached in the wilderness of Judea, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. But he baptized many converts in the River Jordan. Who can tell but that in years hence, another Luke may write a book about our minister preaching in the wilderness of Dodge City and baptizing in the River Arkansas. Isn't that beautiful? (laughs) I just love it. It's just so cute. I think he's big a little tongue in cheek and snarky, actually, but it's, it's really pretty fun. But anyway, his first night in town, so Reverend Wright comes and he signs into the hotel. And he's traveling all day, so he goes to bed. And in the middle of the night, they rouse him out of bed because this prostitute was killed in a bar fight. And they want to give her a decent burial, a Christian burial. So they rouse this guy. They find out he's been in town, this reverend guy. So they make him go out, and he just does a beautiful job. He does it, and he he reads the story of the woman caught in adultery, and um, they were weeping and deeply moved. And people really came to like him. He also had a real sense of humor, and and people played pranks on him, and he loved it. And uh, he just had this, he wasn't a, a stuffy, uh, self-righteous kind of a person at all. And he built real relationships there in town. And he started Little Church, which pretty soon had about 20 people. And it's just a really interesting story. So, um, like I said, the previous evangelist had been uh, driven off, but he was welcome because of his character and the kind of person that he was. And he did plant a little church there. And within a few years, um, he, well, six years later, his health actually broke and he had to travel back east. And he never came back to Dodge, but he pastored for another 30 years in another place. But, um, the, the impact there was pretty significant because that little church allowed other settlers that kind of want families, farmers and people like that, to to feel more comfortable settling in that area. And uh Bat Masterson, the famous uh gunslinger, said that Reverend Wright affected his life in a very profound way. So I don't know, but um he was a lawman, but you know, he was prone to shoot people. But um <laughs> But anyway, with within you know, we think of Dodge as this wild place, and it was, but, you know, within 12 or 15 years, it was a pretty normal town, and all the wild elements went further west, and Reverend Wright was one of the reasons for that, so just wanted to bring that up for, because it has nothing to do with the book of Acts, except, (laughs) (laughs) except uh, I thought about that story, because um, Acts 19 is really about the economics of sin, and when, when we preach the gospel, and we take the gospel into the world, and cultures oppose us. A lot of times the reasons are economic, not um, so much spiritual or other things. And sometimes it's everything, but here's a really good example of the economics of sin. And we deal with the economics of sin all the time in our culture. um, Hollywood. uh, Christians, unfortunately, give Hollywood a lot of money for a lot of trash that they put out. Because if they put it out, we see it and give them money for that. That's an economic reality. It's an area of economics we could actually affect and change things because there's enough Christians in this country to do it but but we don't do that because we can't stay away from stuff even horrible stuff that they put out which is really too bad. But if you think of the marijuana industry today how it's taken over and even af- deeply affected our town. So they legalized it so everything would be above board, right? So there's no more illegal stuff going on just so you know that. Of course there's tons of illegal stuff going on. It's one of the biggest issues right now in the Enloe Valley and in, in, in Acton. It's a huge problem. Pete, you know, and it's just so interesting because what are they trying to fix by legalizing that? They want everybody to uh, be able to get high whenever they want to. So, and if, if it's so popular, it's so widely used that in our culture, people are so unhappy or so unable to enjoy life that they literally need chemical stimulation to be happy I mean that's like an amazing thing about our culture that that many people have to be high chemically a false way of feeling good just to make it through life like they can't feel good without chemicals that's that's really a tragic Thing. But of course, this gigantic industry has grown now and it's, it's buying our houses and all that kind of stuff, you know, for illegal grows and everything. All of that's happening. So when the gospel comes and people give things up, it, it changes the economic dynamics in a community. And that's kind of what's going on in the city of Ephesus. Um, last time we looked at the great revival that took place there as people forsook their allegiance to the pagan deities like Artemis. Great as Artemis of the Ephesians. So that was the central goddess of Ephesus. And they willingly, we saw last time, destroyed all of their magic books and all of their um, stuff up to the tune of many millions of dollars worth of things because they trusted in Jesus. And they were not going to cling to those things anymore. They were going to let them go. Verse 18, uh, many of those who believed kept coming, confessing, disclosing their practices, and many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they added up the prices of the books, and it was found to be 50,000 pieces of silver, which is just a huge sum, huge sum. These are people who believed. So these are people who professed Christ, and there came a day when they made a final break with their past allegiances, whatever they were committed to before or was they were doing in their life, they were giving that up. So only Christ is to reign supreme for them. They made that decision, and they did it in a large numbers of people. So it says they kept coming, they kept coming, that verb implies an ongoing process there. They were confessing, and they were disclosing their practices and getting rid of them. So it was a great day for the gospel because people got serious about their faith. And that's how you know people love Jesus, if they love him more than other stuff you know, other things. That's how you know. So they were willing to forsake the world for him. So we're not told exactly what caused this great revival at this particular moment. It just kind of all happened at one time. Maybe somebody preached a great sermon um, on the church and uh, the, the need to let go of the world, you know. Maybe that somebody preached on Psalm 25 like we read earlier in the service this morning where David says, make me know your ways, Lord, teach me your ways. Lead me in your truth and teach me for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all day long. Maybe somebody took that text and pounded it into them and they changed their lives. Whatever happened, the people were moved to put feet to their faith and do something very specifically to make the living God their trust, not stuff, not other things, not other gods, not chemicals or anything like that. So, verse 20 says, so the word of the Lord was growing and prevailing mightily. That means it was having a big effect on a a large number of people. So this event, this burning of the magic books was really about believers just getting real about their faith. And it appears to have led Paul to make a decision because he's been in Ephesus longer than he's been anywhere else in the mission field, three years, and he's made a decision um, to move on. So uh, verse 21 He's thinking about other places, even Rome. Verse 21, it says, Now after these things were finished, so that's that whole sort of movement, this giving up of things, Paul resolved in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. So Luke uses a really interesting phrase here. He says he resolved in the Spirit. So Bible students have a big in their head about that when they come across that. So w- spirit, What is that a capital S or a small s? Of course when they wrote these Greek things they were all capital letters. So um, they didn't have that. So is it the Holy Spirit or is it Paul's spirit? That's one of the translation issues there. So some Bibles will translate it with spirit capital like mine does and other ones will translate it with a small s like it was Paul's spirit that he resolved inside internally in his spirit, that kind of a thing. I think it's a big S, just for, yes. just for your sake, um, for, for two reasons. One is that word must. It sounds like it might be more than a desire. It's something that was um, kind of required of him. Um, it's not super definitive about that because we say must sometimes. You know, before I die, I must go to Israel. We say things like that, so that's not a super strong argument. But um, the strongest thing, I think, is, is the, the phrasing itself. It says Paul was... Paul was resolved in the Spirit, not his Spirit. So usually if you're talking about a person in their own mind and their own heart, you would say they're resolved in their Spirit. I, he was resolved in his Spirit. But this says the Spirit. And that sounds a lot more like the Holy Spirit, the way Luke uses that kind of phraseology. So I think he's being told to do this or led by the Spirit to do this. So, um, but anyway, he's going to go to Jerusalem one more time and then he's going to go on to Rome. And I think another basis for this, believing it's the Holy Spirit, is he is determined to go to Jerusalem, even though many people try to dissuade him. That's coming up in the book of Acts, but he's determined to go there, and maybe he has to. That might be the whole issue there, because the Lord's telling him to do that. But anyway, um, there's a couple other reasons why he wants to go. In Acts chapter 20 verse 16, it specifically says he wanted to be there for Pentecost in Jerusalem, and Acts 21, 18, and 19 makes it really clear that the Jerusalem church and its leaders um, that sent him on the mission field, he wants to meet with them. It's been three years. He hasn't even met with that church again. So he wants to go to the, the church. His, I mean, his sending church is Antioch, but his, you know Jerusalem is the center of everything. So he wants to go back there and connect with them and then go to Antioch and all that. So anyway... Um, We also know from a lot of the letters that Paul was collecting a rather large um, amount of money to bring to Jerusalem. That may have already happened, but he wants to see how that all worked out. Those are all reasons he might have wanted to go personally anyway. But the Holy Spirit um, seems to have very definite plans for him, I think, in this text. Now, if you're in Ephesus on the um, western edge of Asia Minor and you want to go to Jerusalem, which direction do you go? You go east. You can go south to, if you want to take a ship around, but you're going east. I mean, Jerusalem is east. But he's going north and west <laughs> because it says he wants to go to Achaia and Macedonia. Macedonia is northwest, northwest, and Achaia is going south from there. Why? What's there? the churches he planted recently so before he came to Ephesus those are the churches that he planted so if you remember before he came to Ephesus he went through Galatia to meet with and and encourage all the churches he had planted on his first missionary journey and now he's going to revisit after three years in Ephesus the churches he planted on his second missionary journey before he goes to Jerusalem so that's why he's going a long way around so he, he wants to do all of that so in Macedonia, there's Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and then south to Corinth, and then he can start heading uh, east again. So um, he just wants to see these people. I don't know if you've read First Thessalonians lately, but you know, they're, they're, they... Uh, he wrote to them, just his tone, just the way he feels about them. You know, he, he says in First Thessalonians chapter 1, he says, We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope, hmm, faith, hope, and love, yeah, they're right there. In our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. He's just thinking about them all the time, and it's been years since he's been there. So he wants to revisit all of these churches. He longs to see them. And he needs to go to Corinth because that church is a mess. So um, it's it's good to go back to there, too. In fact, in second Corinthians chapter eleven twenty eight he talks about, quote, he says, the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? It's just the pastoral heart right there. He's got that feeling towards them, so he wants to go back to Corinth again as well. He's been sending guys. There's a lot of communication going on, but nothing like being there in person, they're just to really connect again and make sure they're doing good and everything's going well. So he sends two of his top men to go ahead of them ahead of him to um, Macedonia and Achaia so verse 22 and after he sent into Macedonia two of those who assisted him Timothy and Erastus he himself stayed in Asia for a while okay then right about this time something really alarming transpires there's a big upheaval in Ephesus he never did have his Ephesus riot and now it's gonna happen After all these years of being there. So, um, although he personally is left out of immediate danger. But um, it's a big mess in Ephesus. Why would there be a problem after three years? Why something after three years? I mean, everybody knows who he is. uh, His impact and the gospel's impact. Well, the gospel's been a little too successful. And this current recent revival where people are burning their magic books and literally cutting the link to anything pagan or anything phony or false or untrue. It's, uh, it's being felt economically. It's being felt economically. That's what starts this thing. Ephesus is not going to be the same place anymore after the gospel's been there. Christ was starting to take hold among the population. So sometime after the days of repentance and the renunciation of all these pagan practices some prominent men in Ephesus realized that their world was changing and they were they're afraid I mean that's the right word I think they're afraid for their livelihood and their influence so um, they get pretty upset the Gospels having this impact so when great revivals happen things change whether it's Dodge City or the great mighty city of Ephesus you know it doesn't really matter but when many people in one area start to make Jesus important in their lives the first thing in their lives and their lives change, then the society changes as well that's what happens So if you remember last week, I talked about how the economic life of Ephesus had changed because it used to be a trading center because it had this huge port and it was in a key place on a river, river going inland, port hitting the ocean outside, so it was a great place. But I told you that silt had kept, for centuries, had been filtering down and kind of wrecked their harbor. So it wasn't a main trading place anymore. Boats could pull in there, smaller boats, but it just wasn't a good place for, for you know trade ships larger ships and heavy ships so so their eco- economy changed to tourism and tourism was built around what Artemis the worship of Artemis, and one of the greatest buildings of the ancient world, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, was the Temple to Artemis in Ephesus. And people would go there just to see that. And then, of course, like any popular place, all kinds of weird businesses grow up around it, right? And we talked about people buying their souvenirs there and all that kind of stuff. So all of those things are going on. So the economy was built around religious tourism, the home of the goddess, and a whole industry built around idols, souvenirs, um... Mostly about the temple, but then with that came um, soothsayers and magic formulas and amulets and secret codes and charms and spells. And I mentioned there's a thing called the Ephesian letters. It's actually a historical thing. They found examples of it and some kind of magic code, these secret words and all this kind of stuff, all of that stuff, all of that. But you know what? Business is down. So on the Roman stock market, Ephesus is declining a little bit if they did I, they I don't know if they had it They didn't have a stock market, but I'm just <laughs> using that language, but their business is down sales are, are slacking and they're starting to notice a trend and They're ascribing it directly to the existence of Christianity in, in their in their country now They did have a synagogue so there were people that would not involve themselves with Artemis, and all, but, but that was not a lo- super large synagogue in Ephesus, Jews wouldn't participate, they were used to that, they, okay, they left them alone, but when this Jesus thing started making everybody act Jewish and staying away from the pagan gods, that, now that hurt, that was hurting your pocketbook, so it was, a, it was a big deal. So the idol makers and the tourist industry people, they're feeling it, um, and, and they just think things are gonna get worse people won't, people aren't going to come visit Ephesus to to hear about Jesus, but they will come to worship Artemis, you know, and see the great temple there. So, um, So this one man in particular, he's a silversmith, so he makes things to sell in the religious tourism business. He called upon his fellow craftsmen, the artisans there that work in that field, to come together. His name is Demetrius, and in his mind there's one problem, and that's Christianity. So verse 24, a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, so little take-home shrines for Artemis, you know, for the tourism people, was bringing considerable business to the craftsmen. He gathered these men together with the workmen of similar trades. Everything's being built around this Artemis temple here, economically. And he gives this great speech, I mean really it's a great speech, I mean we have a little version of it here but it's, um, it's masterful manipulation, it's, it's really awesome, there are several times in scripture, several times, I can think of three major er, times in scripture where the bad guys give a really great speech and this is one of them, this is, what, this is the New Testament when there's two in the Old Testament but here it is, verse 25, men, so he's got all this fellow craftsmen there, right? people that his livelihood is built around the temple Men you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. You see in here that not only in Ephesus but in almost all of Asia this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that gods made by hands are not gods at all. Yes, shocking. Verse 27, not only is there danger that this trade of ours will fall into disrepute but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be regarded as worthless and that she, whom all of Asia and the world worship, will even be dethroned from her magnificence. Pocketbook, religion, and national pride. That's the perfect trifecta for political movements, right? That's how politicians manipulate people. So he uses religion masterfully. But it's really all about their business interests. That's what it's all about. It's about the money. And it often is about the money. A lot of things in life are about the money, right? So when the gospel affects profits in the idol business, you know something really great is going on. The, The culture is accepting a new idea. Idols are nothing. The Jews always believed that, but now a lot of people are believing that. Gentiles are starting to believe that. So he calls it a danger. It hasn't taken over yet. It hasn't destroyed the world yet, but he sees it coming. He sees the effect going on. So verse 28, a near riot starts. When they heard this, they were filled with careful deliberation. No, that's not what it says. <laughs> This is a master speech, remember? What happens when you get one of these guys that knows how to press all those buttons? They were filled with rage. They were filled with rage. And they began shouting, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And they're chanting that, you know. So notice the emotional pitch here. It's, it's pure rage. And we see that today, uh, even in our own politics sometimes. But you can really see it in is- Islamist uh, world, right? Uh, Allahu Akbar, I mean that's, it's that level of chanting in the streets kind of stuff, you know, death to America and all that kind of stuff. So uh, that's a similar thing going on here. Verse 29, the city was filled with the confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's Macedonian traveling companions. Okay, so why the theater? Are they going to take Gaius and Aristarchus to a play? No, the theater was used as an assembly for the, the community. The whole city would go there if they had some big issue to, dry, to try to deal with. That, that's where the assembly met. I want to show you a couple of pictures real quick from there. Um, these are ones we took. We were actually there, and, and if, you're, if you're on a, a hill where there's a cave that has the oldest known pa- painting of the Apostle Paul, it's like from the 6th century, from that cave uh, you can see that, that's the theater. It's huge. It's huge. Now on Paul's day, it probably the top r- section there, you can see it's sort of in three sections. It was built in three different times. The top section was probably being worked on at that very time because they were, they were expanding it. So eventually it would hold 25,000 people um, in this, this great theater. The next picture is, um, this is the road leading to it. This is kind of looking from where the theater is. This is called the Arcadian Way and the harbor was at the other end and so people would land there on ships, come down that big, broad road with all kinds of stuff on the sides. It's all ruins now. But, and, they, and then turn around to the next one. And this is looking the other way on the Arcadian Way. And those two little people in front there, that's Laura and me. <laughs> but that's how big the theater is. I mean, it's just absolutely gigantic. So um, it's pretty amazing. The next picture shows you this beautiful girl I met in no <laughs> um, It just shows you. You can walk around on there. Hey, don't whistle at my wife. <laughs> 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 anyway, then, then, then the last picture just shows you from up, when you're sitting up in there, what it looks like. So it's a huge place. Of course, it's just, it's a ruin, so it was even more grand, but it's still really grand. It's just an amazing place. That's where they take them. So Paul was, Paul's friends were there, and of course, Paul had been there three years. He would have been in the theater multiple times. But um, these are these are real places, and these are real things. In fact, um, an inscription was found in the theater when they were excavating there. Uh, describing how a Roman official named Gaius Salutaris presented to the city of Ephesus a silver image of Artemis and other statues to put up in the theater there. So it was all kind of built around that whole whole thing. So among the Greeks, a spontaneously called uh, civic assembly would happen now and then to address a situation quickly. And that's sort of what's happening here. So the word kind of gets out. Everybody comes running down the streets to the, to the theater to find out what's going on. But this one is turning ugly, I mean, really fast. And there's, there's no presiding legal authority there. So this is a, a, a bottom-up thing, and it's a rage-filled thing. So. But everybody comes, you know, some, what's going on? So verse 30, when Paul wanted to go to the assembly, the disciples would not let him. Also, some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent word to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. That's a really interesting word, Asiarchs. That was a word that was used for leading citizens that were appointed to this provincial council by the Roman governor. So it's like these were really important citizens of Ephesus. So within three years, Paul had friends who were leading members of the community. They might be Christians. It doesn't say that. But they might not be, but they might just like Paul. So um, they are trying to protect him. So they say, don't go down there. He wanted to go down there. And they say, don't go. You're the one they're really ultimately gonna be after. It's interesting they didn't go after him right away and they took Gaius and Aristarchus. We don't know why. Maybe because people by that time knew that Paul was a Roman citizen and he was kind of hands off because of that, maybe that's why, but we don't know. But um, anyway, they grabbed two of his guys. They're gonna start with them. So the theater is a mess, verse 32. So then some were shouting one thing and some in another. You ever been that, at, in places like that? For the assembly was in confusion and the majority did not know for what reason they had come together. So there's some big hullabaloo, it's going crazy, it's, something's going on, everybody's yelling at each other, and everybody's showing up, but they don't even know what it's about. So it's not a good situation. This wasn't ordered by the government or the city council or anything. This is just these, uh, these craftsmen, the guildsmen that started this whole mess. So everybody comes, but they don't know why. So the next part shows how passionate the crowd was. So the Jews in Ephesus asks one of their leaders to speak. His name is Alexander. Um, Just so that, I think they did this. It doesn't say the reason, but probably, I'm I'm sure, the reason was so that this mob would know that whatever they're upset about, it had nothing to do with the Jews. So Alexander was going to say, hey, if this is some worshiping Artemis thing, you know we don't mess with that. So it has nothing to do with us. But some folks think it is the Jews, so they don't let him speak. Verse 33, some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander, since the Jews had put him forward, that that was the cause of the problem, was this Jewish thing. So um, having motioned with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. And then verse 34, but when they recognized that he was a Jew, a single outcry arose from them all as they shouted for about two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So it's just like some uh, streets of Tehran, you know, when they get upset. So it's that kind of a thing. It's, uh, they're just out of control. So this chanting, I guess you could say it's the equivalent of Alexander, poor Alexander, the synagogue leader, being booed off the stage. So he doesn't get a chance to say anything. Um, he was trying to just say, hey, this isn't about us. Um, so he, anyway, it's a mob situation. Just imagine Gaius and Aristarchus, they're the ones that were dragged there, Paul's companions, and they have to sit there like or stand there while all this is going on around them, they don't know what's going to happen, so um, they're the ones that are identified as the opponents of everything that makes Ephesus great and, prof- and prosperous, they're, they're the guilty guys, you know that's what they're being put forward, but nothing is being done in an organized way, so let me just stop here and just talk about us for a little bit because we we kind of have to get used to being in the Gaius Aristarchus position in the world. I mean, America's changing pretty rapidly and faithful Christians in modern America are very specifically and very loudly on, in academia, in Hollywood, in the music industry, we are the villains. I mean, we are the bad guys. And that's just how it's going to be. So we probably need to get used to that for ourselves. Um, we're the enemies of progress. We're the enemies of love. We hate love. That, that's what they say. So, and love has been redefined so that they can say that about us. It's been changed, right? Love used to be wanting the best for other people. That's what love used to be. And laboring for the other person's good. That, that's what it used to be. But now it's been um, changed. Love is accepting whatever anyone says or does with their bodies about sexuality. That's what love is. So if you don't accept that, you are an unloving human being. So even though we've had centuries of people agreeing that you do need to control your sexuality and there's sort of a proper order for sexuality, that's off. So now if you believe what people have believed for centuries, Christians and non-Christians, you're an enemy of the state and of, and of people. So the, the rainbow flag is, is raised with the same unforgiving fervor that these Ephesians folks have in defense of the goddess. It's the same intensity and rage at, at people that don't accept that kind of thing. Say the wrong thing and you'll be canceled, right? So I'm, I'm sure Gaius and Aristarchus bore this like men, you know, prayerfully and with dignity and all that kind of stuff. But um, we, have to, we, have to be, we have to stand firm for the truth. And that eventually means... You're the bad guy in a a sinful world. It eventually does mean that. And it's it's absolutely essential that we not become like those who despise us. We can't return that kind of rage and anger in kind. And I hear that a little too much in Christian circles, is anger at the world for being the world. (laughs) That's what they're supposed to be. That's their job. So, um, you know, our love... Just because we're maligned and hated doesn't mean we love people less. We don't. We love them more. That's, that's our job. So that's our job in the world. So it's our calling. It's our calling to suffer for the truth on, on God's behalf. That's what we're supposed to do. Whether it be pointing to idols and saying they're nothing or whether it's standing for biological realities, right? That God designed two genders and... Um, something is built into the very fabric of every single cell in your body that identifies you as either male or female, and that's all there is. That's all there is. And, and what's amazing is that this is a place where science and the Bible completely agree. Because if a scientist is being honest, he's going to say, yes, there are two genders, there's only two ways to go. you got an XX chromosome or an XY chromosome. Now, some people have a weird twisted genetic anomaly, but that's, that's an error, right? That's not talking anything about the way things are supposed to be. So, um, here, here, here the Bible and science totally agree on this particular matter, and so suddenly we're not interested in science anymore. I, I, I've got a, this sneak, sneaking suspicion, and it's just a suspicion, because, you know, evolution is sort of starting to get on the ropes a little bit more, and the whole, it's it kind of crumbling a little bit, and there's some really bright very highly placed people now in the, the, the sciences and the computer sciences and um, that are starting to say, you know what, that whole Darwinian thing isn't really working and it's not quite accurate and um, we're questioning the whole thing and so that's kind of falling away. That used to be the unbelievers great thing to hold on to, but, but it's shifted now, so science isn't so much opposed to us in, in the same way now as self-identity, which is entirely subjective, it has nothing to do with science. So. So if the culture goes to to something else to oppose God, it's this, I'll identify myself, and and you can't question. I have an unquestioned right to define myself in any way I say. It's difficult to argue against that, right? I mean, with science, ultimately science is going to bear itself out with what the truth really is, because you keep studying and more things come about. And that's why evolution is kind of on the ropes right now. It's having a, a hard time. But they tell us now that we must, and society must, in every way, in every way, accept me as I define myself, and any way I define myself, and as often as I want to redefine myself. We have to accept that, but only in regard to sexuality. (laughs) That's what that's all about. So like Demetrius, they suggest if you don't accept this, you're an enemy of mankind. Great is the autonomous self. That, that would be the chant. A much more demanding God than Artemis. The autonomous self. I am whatever I say I am. And you've got to accept it. You've got to. Sometimes, men who are not even of us, Christian people, religious people, sometimes they'll stand up and agree with us. And that's what happens here in Ephesus. On this day in Ephesus, a guy stands up, not for Christ, but for justice. And we don't even know his name, but he's called the Grammateus, which my Bible translates as a town clerk, but that's not a very accurate description of what a Grammateus was in a city in Asia Minor in those days. Ephesus was a free city. It was subject to Rome, but it, they were allowed to govern their own affairs. Uh, The Grammateus was a guy like a mayor. He's much more like the mayor of a town. There's a city council and the Asiarchs and the people that kind of run things, but this guy was the link between Rome and the city council. He's an important person. He's not a clerk. I mean, you think of a clerk as a guy behind a desk keeping track of everything. It's way more than that. He was an influential, important person. He's a man of authority. And from the little bit we see of him here, he's the kind of man that truly did make Rome a great empire. He's sharp, he's temperate, he's prudent, He's committed to justice and order and the law. That's the kind of man he is. That's the kind of man we need in our culture right now, actually. But um, that's, that's what he's like. And when he arrives, at the end of two hours of chanting, and some people wonder, you know, well, why is he so late getting there? The whole town got there. Well, we don't know where he was, for one thing. But also, he comes knowing all the facts. So he may have had reports coming to him and figured out who started this and what's going on So before he came in to the the uh, theater there. But when he arrives um, all facts in hands he's allowed to speak. That's how important he was. They stopped for him. And he asked a question, verse 35. After quieting the crowd, the, the town clerk said, men of Ephesus what person is there after all who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from the sky. Again, apparently there was a meteorite or something that they worshipped as well or honored there. So he says you guys are you guys are chanting this rage thing about something everybody knows already right? Everybody knows that. So he's kind of shaming them for being an undignified mob which Romans hate. Romans hate things out of control. So um, he says of course Artemis of the Ephesians is great and nothing's happened to her. She's still there, the temple's fine, nothing's going on. Verse 36, so since these are undeniable facts You ought to keep calm and not do anything rash. That's great. That's great advice. And because these things are true, he says, just act accordingly. Verse 37 For you have brought these men here who are neither temple robbers nor blasphemers of our goddess. Now, it's definitely true that they weren't robbing temples. Temples were used as banks in the ancient world, they didn't have banks so they used temples because they thought a certain number of people would be afraid to rob a temple and get the gods mad at them, but also it was just the most secure place around, so people would actually put their money in a temple for protection, probably pay a little fee or something, they really worked like banks in many ways, but so so, uh, he says they're not temple robbers, now when he says Christians haven't blasphemed the goddess. Well, they probably do, I mean, from a pagan perspective. I'm not sure, though. I'm not sure about that. He might be leaning on his knowledge of the Jews. Now, this is something you might not know, but this is pretty interesting. The Jews actually had a rule that governed their communities that lived in pagan places because most Jews did not live in the Holy Land. They lived all over the Roman Empire, and we've seen synagogue after synagogue after synagogue. They kind of had a rule among themselves, and Josephus, who lived the time of Paul, a Jewish historian, he actually wrote about it and here's here's what he said. The rule was for Jews living in Gentile lands, now in the Holy Land they could knock pagans all they wanted to, but when they were in other people's countries it was let none blaspheme the gods which other citizens serve nor rob foreign temples, nor take treasure that has been dedicated in the name of any god. So um, Demetrius was right in verse 26, The, the Christians did say that God made with hands are no gods at all. They they do say that. But maybe they didn't blaspheme Artemis by name, maybe. And the only thing example I can think of that is when Paul was in Athens, he didn't specifically attack Jupiter or Venus or anything like that. He just gave a great speech about what the true living God was like and that he doesn't dwell in houses made with hands. It was general. He didn't attack God specifically. He did it generally. And that's kind of what Demetrius knew in verse 26 that they say that gods made with hands aren't gods at all. They did, they did say that and Paul would have definitely taught that. But Paul might have a- avoided attacking Artemis by name, I don't know. But like I said, in Athens he, he didn't do that as far as we know. But um, anyway, whatever the case is there, had any laws been broken, that's where the Grammateus is, that's where his mind is going, have any laws been broken? If so, he's going to say there's a system of justice for that. But rioting and mobs, they have no place in a Roman city. So verse 38, so then, he's going on, if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him, see he knows, he knows who started this, have a complaint against anyone, the courts are in session, and pro are available, have them bring charges against one another. But if you want anything beyond this, it will be settled in the lawful assembly this is not a lawful assembly." <laughs> That's what he's saying. And if you want to have a lawful assembly, we can do that, and you can bring charges and the whole thing goes. It's very masterful. And then it says, after this he dismissed the assembly. So there will be an investigation. I gotta throw this out real b- briefly too. It mentions proconsuls plural. There was, generally there's one proconsul in any Roman province. There was a brief period of time in Ephesus, right when Paul was there, where there were two proconsuls, Because one was murdered, he was assassinated, and these other two guys took his place until the emperor sorted it out. It's just pretty interesting that that perfectly matches what Luke says, because that's something we know from history, just had to throw that out there. But anyway, um, Luke gives a pretty fair portrayal of government officials in his writing. Uh, He will criticize them when it's appropriate, but, you know, respectful when they're true to their station and honorable men. And that way, you know, the book of Acts, if it was ever read by Romans in power, they would see themselves portrayed fairly by Luke. And I think that was an important um, thing then. So um, the commentator Linsky says of this particular day, he says, it began wildly, it ended tamely. That was God's providence. He as yet wanted no martyrs in Ephesus. So the grammateus solved that problem that day. And there weren't martyrs that day. There will be in Ephesus in the years c- to come, but not then. So for now things calm down and the gospel is progressing. But you know, honestly, Demetrius's fears were pretty unfounded in terms of their own time period. It took a long time for the gospel to really work itself into these cultures enough where paganism really stopped. But we do know one thing. So right around the turn of the century, I'm talking about into the second century, like the 105, 17, 110, right in that zone, there's letters being exchanged between the governor of Bithynia, which is right next door to Asia, it's just north, west, east of there, northeast, Bithynia. The name was Pliny, and he wrote the emperor Trajan, and they had this long conversation back and forth about what to do with Christians. And Pliny says, I'm not going to give you the whole thing, but they, they, they talk about, Pliny said, I'm putting them to death if they won't deny Christ and burn um, incense to your name. And he says, but I'm getting all these anonymous lists of people from people uh, accusing other people of being Christians and I don't know what to do. And the emperor writes back and he says, hey, let's not do the anonymous list thing. He says, but if they're going to, if you got a real Christian there and he refuses to deny the faith and curse Christ, then yes, put him to death. So he did that. And then Pliny writes back and he says, the temples are starting to be revisited again. Because nominal Christians or people that were kind of hanging on church kind of because it was fun and nice and they liked it and it was beautiful and they loved the hymns or whatever the thing was, those people went back to some level of pagan practice. Because he said before that, he said before I started killing them, he said the temples were empty and the gods were being neglected. That's what he said. So that was like 50 years later. So it really was having that impact over time, the gospel in, in, there. So it made a big difference. It really did. So... Much of the opposition to us, it's not personal. It's not personal. It's about the blindness of men's hearts. It's about the love of sin. And it's very often about the love of money. That's a big part of it. So expect opposition. Let them rage and love them. That's our job. That's our job. That's actually what we're called to do, to love those that hate us. That's what Jesus did. And he did that for us. And that's what we're supposed to do. God determines the times. Sometimes we have to just stand firm. Sometimes we have to die for him. Sometimes God will ordain circumstances where the gospel really flourishes in peace. And at other times, the blood of the martyrs is the seed from which the gospel grows into different cultures. It just depends on his sovereign will, what's going to happen or when. But in all things, we're supposed to be what? Faithful, right? Faithful. And take what comes as God's will for us. So our joy and our hope are, are not dependent on the conditions of the world around us. You should never get depressed about that. You're a light in that world. You've got a wonderful mission in that world, a job in that world. It's, it's your opportunity to serve other people. Our security is in Christ, not the conditions of the world around us. So just be faithful and pray that people will see eternity as something to be desired and that they will see that Christ provides that for them and that that's the only thing that matters in the end because this whole world's passing away and it will let's pray Father we thank you for Gaius and Aristarchus men we know very little about but who bravely stood the day and stood the test we thank you for people in the world that you bring along that will stand up for the truth and uh, stand beside us for protection and law and order We thank you for the example of the Ephesians who cast away all kinds of superstition and foolishness and pagan things and gave themselves to you wholeheartedly because that is what began to change their world. Thank you for men like Reverend Wright who walked into hell on the plains and planted a church and did great work. May we have his heart and the heart of all those we read about today in this story. In Christ's name we pray, amen.